Prior to moving to Houston and coming to St. Mark, I pastored a church in the heart of Queens for just over six years. Uh, the neighborhood that I served was once labeled by National Geographic as the most diverse zip code in the world. Everybody lived there. Every type of person lived there. In the church that I pastored just across the street was a public elementary school, PS 139. And in PS 139, there were more than 70 different languages that were spoken. When I say everybody was there, everybody was there. And for a kid who grew up in the heart of, of mid-Michigan, a rather rural community where everybody kind of, not kind of, completely looked like me, thought like me, talked like me, lived like me, it was an eye-opening experience to live in the heart of Queens. Eye-opening and enriching and incredible. But I learned a lot, as you might imagine. I learned a lot about just how different life is for those who are different than me. One of the most profound lessons came from a woman named Margaret. Margaret was an immigrant from Africa, North Africa, and she had two teenage children who were born in the U.S. And one day, as we were getting ready for vacation Bible school, I asked her, her oldest child, her son, who was 17 at the time, I asked him to run an errand for me. I asked him to take some items down to Walgreens at the corner and return them for me and to pick up some other things and bring them back to the church. It was maybe a, maybe a half mile walk away, not even. And something you need to know uh, about her 17-year-old son is he's African-American, six foot two, uh, strong, young, black man, wonderful kid. He's now in the US military uh, and doing awesome things. Uh, just an all-around great kid. But that's who I asked to go to the corner for me and make an exchange. And you also need to know that this was not too far removed from the death of Michael Brown in Brooklyn, um, who, who, who died at the, um, in, in, in an altercation with police officers, and not too far removed from, from Trayvon Martin and his, his passing, which was on the minds of the people in the community that I served. And so I asked, I asked Margaret's oldest child, her 17-year-old son, to go down to the corner store for me and just make a simple exchange at Walgreens. And as I made that request, he then walked over to his mom and asked for permission. And mom's face kind of got a little bit of, um, of tension on it, maybe some concern, and her sisters did as well. And then they talked about it, and then ultimately she said, you can go take your sister with you, and then they went down to the CVS. And I thought, well, that's just kind of strange. Like, who... It's, who needs permission to go to, to go to CBS at 17 years old? And then Margaret came over to me and she said, Pastor, thank you for asking him to run an errand for you, but I hope you understand that for us, sending my son to the store in this neighborhood is not a simple ask. Being a 17-year-old, six-foot-two, black male in the heart of Queens, walking with an item into a store they had to have a game plan for that. What if someone questioned you? What if someone looked at you sideways? What if someone tried to start something with you? That was their reality. That was not my reality. I never had to think twice about walking into CBS or Walgreens. I never had to think twice about it. But for them, in our world, at that time, they did. And that for me was, was a simple but eye-opening lesson that simply said, my experience is different from the experience of everybody else, in particular those who don't look like me. It's a different experience. 
Now, I bring all that up because in light of that story and in light of today's reading, you might have guessed that we're going to talk about something that's sensitive and perhaps even kind of awkward. We're in the middle of a series called Baggage where we're looking at the, the hurts and the hangups and the stuff that we bring to important issues in life that make them more difficult or make them more complicated. And today we're talking about the baggage that we bring to race. And the reason we're talking about this is because, you know, as I've just illustrated, race and, and racial tension and complexity is something we all deal with and navigate in some way, shape, or form in, in the West, but in particular here in the United States. But also, it's important for us to talk about because it's part of the biblical story. It's a key part of what's going on in, in much of the Old Testament, and in particular, the New Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, you could say that the entire story of the Old Testament is about God making a people, a particular people with a particular culture and particular practices for himself. He's making a people an ethnic people for himself, and those people who are his people are then there to exist as a light to the rest of the world who is not yet his people. And then in the New Testament, the big question that hangs over the New Testament is will Jewish Christians accept Gentile Christians? And what will happen when there are two worlds, when there are two communities and cultures and practices and traditions, when they have to come together. Who's going to give? Who's going to change? Who's going to have to become like who? And there's debates that ensue and people get arrested. People die over this question that looms over the New Testament. The story of, of race and communities and cultures and their overlapping and their intersecting, it is all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And into that, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 to a community who's dealing with that. They're right at the intersection of these issues as a young church with Jewish and non-Jewish believers coming together. And Paul's big message in Ephesians 2, the second, second half of that chapter, is this, that Jesus Christ has broken down the things that want to drive us apart. Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection has broken down the things that seek to drive us apart from one another and divide us as people. Listen again to what he says from a different, a slightly different translation, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The ceremonial, theological, ethnic, ethical, cultural, whatever it is, things that are being used in the church to divide people, all of those questions were all answered and pushed to the side in Jesus Christ. The things that sought to divide the church along ethnic and racial lines were conquered in Christ and set aside. Now, if that's true, then the question that you should be asking, that I immediately ask when I read Ephesians chapter 2, that if, if what Paul says about what the work of Jesus Christ has accomplished is true, then why is this still such an issue, not just for, for us in our world in general, but why is it an issue in the church? We who believe in and follow this Jesus who has broken down that wall of hostility between us as different tribes and tongues, why is this still an issue? And the very simple and unsatisfying answer is sin. 
You know, one way to define sin is a self-obsession. A self-obsession focused on power. That's one of the ways to define sin. It's a self-obsession focused on power. And this obsession with power and this obsession with ourselves, it turns us away from God and it turns us away from our neighbors. And because we're turned away from God and away from our neighbors in this grasp for power, thinking that we must protect ourselves and fight for ourselves and save ourselves and look out for ourselves, that's the lie that sin tells you. You're all on your own and you've got to grasp for as much power and privilege and authority as you can so that you can protect yourself and save yourself. What that does is it pulls us from God, it pulls us from others, and then it fuels all this stuff that fosters and creates the division and the tension between us as human beings. The, the scriptures tell us that the whole purpose of your life as a human being, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, the, the, the whole purpose of your life as a human being is simple. The whole purpose of your life is to love God and love others. Over and over, scriptures tell us that. And yet what happens is, because of our sinful obsession with self and, and hunger and lust for power, which turns us away from God and turns us away from others, rather than love others, what we do is we seek to leverage others. And by leverage, what I mean is we see others as someone that we need to get ahead of, get in front of, or prioritize as somehow less than or lower than ourselves. Because remember, I've got to save myself and it's all about power. So now, rather than love you, I've got to find a way to get ahead of you. And I've got to leverage this relationship so that I can get ahead of you. And when you're seeking to leverage and get ahead rather than love, what happens is distinctions between you and that other person all of a sudden become points of division. Because this person is a threat to you. You're looking out for yourself, you need power, and you don't have the luxury to see the beauty and complexity and diversity of the world. Now all you see is something that you can use as a means to get ahead or something to hold against them so that you can have more power, more privilege, and more opportunity than the other person. Rather than love, we leverage and we turn distinctions into divisions. I mean, I would argue that, that anytime you see racism in all of its ugly forms, at its essence, what you're seeing is someone clamoring for power or to hold on to power at the expense of another person and using the distinctions between them as the excuse. That's what you're seeing. And when that happens, and we've all seen it happen in some way, shape, or form, at some point, we're all guilty of it. And many of us have been on the receiving end of it. When that happens, it builds up a wall between the two groups. It builds what Paul might call a wall of hostility between those two groups, a dividing wall of hostility. And here's the thing. When a wall of hostility gets built up between two people or two communities or two parties, there's only one way to break that wall down. You can't bulldoze it down. You can't talk the wall apart. You can't just reason with it. You can't do any of those things. The only way to break down a wall of hostility between two groups or two individuals is that somebody on either side of the wall has to sacrifice. When there's a wall of hostility between you and somebody else, somebody's got to sacrifice. And let's put this in the context of, 
of less tense relationships. Let's talk about the relationship between you and your spouse or you and your kids. When you guys get sideways with one another, when you and your spouse are building a wall of hostility between you and the other person, the only way that that wall gets broken down is if one of you is like, well, I'm going to have to give up and give in here. <laughs> I'm going to have to apologize. I'm going to have to give up my right to feel right. I'm going to have to give up my right to feel wronged by them. Somebody's going to have to sacrifice. Something's going to have to die in order for that wall to be broken down. And the same is true here. Now let's back up a bit and let's talk about the relationship between God and all of mankind. Paul talks about really two dividing walls of hostility, one that exists between racial groups, ethnic groups, and one that exists between all people and the divine. And there is this wall of hostility, this deep division between humanity and God because of humanity's sinfulness, at least there used to be. But what happened? God, out of his love for us, wanting a relationship with us, despite this division between all of us and him, he said, well, if this wall's going to go anywhere, if this division is going to be erased, I'm going to have to do something about it. And so God says, something's going to have to die. Something's going to have to give. And so God goes first. And what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, who is the literal sacrifice. And Jesus comes and, and he lives the life that we can't live. And then he dies the death that we deserve. And he rises out of our tomb and he defeats the hostility between humanity and God. Now the sins are paid for. The curse is broken. There is nothing between humanity and the one who made us. Nothing. Nothing at all. There is nothing stopping you from having a right relationship with God the Father. Because of Jesus Christ the Son, the wall of hostility and division is broken down. But what did it take? What did it take? It took a death, right? It took a sacrifice, right? It took the one who, who, who in, for all rights and all intents and purposes, shouldn't have to do a thing to do the greatest thing. That's what it took. Now, the good news about that for this conversation, and this is a big part of Paul's point, is that the peace that Jesus Christ won for humanity is meant to foster peace among humanity. The divisions that Jesus broke down between us and the Father is meant to then fuel a breaking down of divisions between us as people. Look again at what Paul says, starting at verse 14, now going through verse 16. Paul writes, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new mankind, one new people, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says that Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, has healed the hostility this way, and it's an opportunity to heal the hostility and the division this way. The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus is the prince of peace. You could also say that Jesus is the price of peace. In his life and his death, in his flesh and his blood, he paid the cost to make this right, and he's opened the door to make this right. 
Now, now how is it that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that, that heals the hostility between humankind and God then can then heal the hostility between all of us? Well, I, I can think of at least three things. First, Jesus has, has taken away your need to clamor for power. You could make a case that apart from Christ, you should clamor for power, that you are on your own, that you do have to look out for yourself, that it is survival of the fittest, and you find whatever advantage you can to survive and to make a life for yourself. But now that Christ has come, you don't need to do that. Because the God of the universe who holds all power in his hands holds you in his hands. And he loves you. And he's promised a future for you. And he's given his spirit to you. And he is kind and gracious to you. Do you need to fight for yourself at the expense of others? No. Because the creator of the universe is already fighting for you, loves you, and holds you in his hands. So now the need to obsess over self and clamor for power is gone. And that's the primary driver of sinfulness. Second, Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, he's taken all the things that you used to try and use as rationalizations for separation between you and other people, and he's conquered those things and set them to the side. For, for the Jewish people, with the Gentiles, it was the ceremonial law. So when Paul makes a reference to Moses' commands, what he's saying is, look, you used to use that as rationale for treating these people differently. You used to use that as a way to legitimize you seeing them as less than. Well, Jesus has taken that completely off the table. Whatever ceremonial, cultural, whatever thing that you want to use against other people, Jesus has answered it, set it to the side. You no longer have that tool in your belt. You can't. And then third, and perhaps most importantly, because we are all recipients of what Jesus has done for us in making our relationship right with the Father, what he's done is made all of us, despite our different tribes and tongues and stories and backgrounds, he's made all of us siblings. We are part of a new identity, a new community, Paul says. We are all brothers and sisters in the faith. And this is why it's right to say that racism in all of its forms and Christianity simply cannot coincide. Not just because racism is repugnant, but because racism is tantamount to a rejection of the person and the work and the promises and the impact of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ says that you and I, no matter your background, no matter my skin color, no matter my culture, no matter yours, we are brothers and sisters in the faith of equal dignity, equal worth, of equal respect and love. Therefore, if I treat you as a less than or I turn a blind eye while somebody else does that, I am not only doing something that's awful, I am rejecting what has been done for me in Jesus Christ who says, no, 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 we are one. I cannot hold both these things in the same hand. It's not possible. So our task as followers of Jesus who know this, is to not only live with the knowledge that our relationship has been made right with the Father, but to then find ways, work towards ways for the rightness to flow through us into all these other relationships where the dividing wall of hostility wants to remain and where our grasp for power and privilege seeks to destroy 
the unity that Jesus Christ is inviting us into. So then the question for us is this, well then how do we do that? What does it look like for us to work from our reconciliation with the Father toward a reconciled world among each other? I'm so glad you asked in the middle of this very awkward conversation. I've got a couple things for you. The first is that we should seek to embody the unity that Jesus has won for us. It is so easy, in particular, with the technology of today, for us to retreat into our little bubbles. God has not made a bubble, though. You make bubbles. You make a, a bubble of, of information, of people, a, a little world where everybody looks like you and sounds like you and talks like you and believes like you and lives like you. But that's not the world that God has created. That's the world you and I create. And it's easier than ever with technology. What you and I are called to do is to burst the bubbles we are tempted to create and seek to ensure that the life that we live, the relationships that we have, reflect more of the diversity of the world that God has created. He has created a world of diversity where the diverse things are not meant to be divisions between us, but together, collectively, as we interact with each other, as we love each other and serve one another, they are meant to offer the world a picture of the diversity and beauty and the fullness of the glory of God. And so what we are called to do is to try and make sure that our world, that we, that we curate, that we lead, and, that, and our relationships is as diverse as the world that God has given us. So my question for you is, what does it look like for you to embrace the unity and the diversity that Jesus Christ has won for us and called us into? I think people of faith should seek to intentionally diversify their lives. You might think it's silly or sad that I have to ask the following questions, but I have to ask the following questions because in my pastoral heart, I know that for some of us, the answer to these questions, sadly, is yes. Are you unwilling to be friends like really be friends with someone from another race or a significantly different culture? Are you unwilling? Are you unwilling to travel to different parts of this diversity that we live in and give your business to minority-owned businesses? Are you unwilling to see a member of your family date or marry a member of another race? If the answer to those questions is yes, then my urge for you, for all of us, is to lift that up to the Lord. Repent of that. Ask God to forgive you of that and change your heart so that you can say no to all of that. Our call is to embody the unity that Jesus has made possible for us. 
I think the other thing that we do, and again, this is, this is driven from what Paul's trying to foster here in Ephesians 2, is to empathize with those who say the hostility is still real and is still hurting them. I mean, you see it on the news. You, you talk about it with people in your life. The, the, the ripple effects of racism in this country, though we have made incredible progress, the ripple effects are still felt by many people that you and I share life with. And our job is not to talk them out of that, not to minimize that. Our task as Christian people is to empathize with that. Remember, the culture will want you to, to hear the stories of people dealing with the harsh realities of racism through a lens that's purely political. What they'll say to you is, here's the story of this person who's been marginalized or treated poorly, and that's wrong. But now, you need to view that through the lens of being on the left. Or you need to view that through the lens of being on the right. But that, you have to fight against that. That, that is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is not left or right, Democrat, Republican. It's not black. It's not white. It is forgiven, beloved, chosen child of God. Now, I'm not saying that your identity as a child of God erases race. It doesn't. But it does supersede it and stands over all of it. And remember, if you hear the story of someone who's struggling, who's hurting, who's wrestling with something that's difficult, the ripple effects of this hostility in our world is hurting them. If they're tossed back and forth by it, remember, this is your brother and sister because of the work of Jesus Christ. And how does a truly good sibling respond to the hurts and pains of a brother or sister? Do they try to tell them, well, maybe it's not as bad as you think. Or, or maybe, maybe you should just try harder. Maybe you should just do things differently. But did that really happen? Are you sure it's not your fault? No, what a good sibling does is says, I see it. And I see you. And because I love you and you're hurting, I hurt for you. Let me sit with you and love you. Paul, in another context, the book of Romans says this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. A way to think of being wise in your own sight is to take your wisdom into somebody else's pain and to try and rationalize them out of it. When a person outside of your circle raises a concern or articulates a need, what is your instinctual response? Is it denial? Can't be that bad. Is it doubt? Or is it compassion? And the third, and this is the point you're going to hate. You're going to hate this. Gosh. But I can't not preach it because it's like the heart of the, it's, it's driven straight from the gospel. It's got biblical support. The third thing we do to try and, and to take some of the reconciliation we've received this way and this way, the third thing we do is we embrace the sacrifice that comes with healing. We embrace the sacrifice that comes with healing. As you encounter somebody else who's struggling with the ripple effects of, of hatred and division between different groups, our response should be the response of Jesus. Jesus' response was to say, I, I will bear the burden. I I will, I will pay the price. I will take some of this onto myself. 
And as people of Jesus who benefited from that in our relationship with the Father, what we are to do is when we see people being tossed back and forth by the difficulties and the divisions of this world, when we see the ripple effects of racism or however sin manifests itself, pulling people apart and hurting and abusing others and putting them under the hand of injustice, whenever we see that in whatever form we encounter it, we see it, our response is not to go, oh, well, that's tough. Our response is to be the response of Jesus, to ask ourselves this question, what can I do at the expense of myself to help ease the pain, the burden, the struggle for my sister or my brother? Now, if you do that, people might accuse you of choosing a political stance. You want to know why? That's because their political identity is all they are and all that they see. But that's not you. We're not political animals. We're forgiven children of God. What can I do at cost to myself to make this better? For them. You see, and this is important for us to mention because very often, even if we get to the point where we recognize, boy, the, the hostility and the divisions are still there and it's going to require a sacrifice in order to knock that hostility and that division down, what we tend to do is we tend to look at the person who's suffering under the weight of the hostility and we say, you really should sacrifice for this. We tend to look at the person who's burdened or abused or mistreated and we put the burden on them even more. You should try harder. You should do things differently. I don't have any problems. Why don't you just try to become more like me? That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus Christ has not looked at you and me in our state and said, boy, you should try harder. What he has done is he's looked at us in our state and he said, I will bear the burden. I will pay the price. And as people of Jesus, what we do is when we see someone who's struggling, we look at them and say, you are not alone. You don't have to fix it. I will fix it with you. Even at cost and complexity and awkwardness to myself, I will be with you. Now, now let's push this into the corners. Let's get into specifics. And this is the part, gosh, you're not going to like this. This is the part where it might get awkward for us, but, but like I want to be hyper-specific. What does this look like in the realities of everyday life? I jotted down a couple of things, Okay. Here's what it may look like. It may mean that when you see a coworker of color passed over for an opportunity for no rational reason that you can comprehend, you should sacrifice your pride and say to them, I think I see what you see. And I'm sorry I haven't said anything. It may mean that you sacrifice your time and your treasure to give to a ministry or, or, or an outreach that, that serves underserved minority communities. It may mean that you sacrifice your comfort with your brother-in-law when he makes a very disparaging remark about the race of the boy that his daughter is dating. It might mean that you sacrifice your habit of listening to your favorite talking points from your favorite talking head on your favorite talk radio station the next time a racial issue is kind of inflamed in our country because you now know that even though you love listening to that guy, that all it does is stoke further division. And again, we often put the onus back on the brother or sister, but we have to put the onus on us. 
When, when change requires a sacrifice, we don't say to them, fix it, it's on you. We say, I see it. Let it be on me. And again, this is, this is not me trying to be political. I'm trying to drive all of this from the scriptures. So again, my, my email address is pastor at firstbaptist.org. <laughs> it's an old joke, but it never fails. Let, let, let me close like this. That dividing wall of hostility that Paul talks about, it's not merely a metaphor, though he's using it metaphorically in this text. The dividing wall of hostility was a real wall. Did you know that? It was a real thing. So in the temple in Jerusalem, there were these giant outer walls around the temple, but, but inside the big walls, there was a small kind of waist-high wooden wall. And it was a barrier. It was meant to keep certain people further from the interior of the temple than others. Gentiles had to stay on the, on the outer rails of this wall. They had to stay on the other side of it. Jews could go further, closer to the temple itself, but Gentiles had to stay further away, behind the dividing wall, which Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility. In fact, if you were a Gentile and you tried to jump over that little wall and get closer to the temple, it was punishable by death. Paul, in the book of Acts, history tells us, is arrested and taken before Roman leaders because they were afraid that because he preached this message that the gospel was for everybody, no matter your race, no matter your creed, no matter your background, that the gospel was for everybody, they were afraid the charge was he was going to take people beyond the dividing wall. He was going to take the wrong people closer to the presence and promises of God. And so what is Jesus saying? That wall that keeps some people further back and allow others to go further toward God, that wall has been knocked down, literally and metaphorically. Now all people, no matter your background, no matter your skin color, no matter who you are, everybody has equal access to the power and the presence and the promises of God. Everybody can run towards the Savior, every single person. Now what's really fascinating is if you fast forward to the very end of the book of Revelation, where we get this picture of when Jesus returns and he restores all things, what we see is a city a city that has these beautiful walls on the outside, but on the inside, there's no extra fences. There's no extra little walls. In fact, the only thing that we're told, besides you know, streets paved with gold, is that there's a wedding feast. So rather than, rather than walls, there's a table. A giant wedding table. And and the scriptures go out of their way to say that everybody is seated at that table. Every tribe, every tongue seated at that table, shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye, elbow to elbow at the same table, each as honored guests of the bridegroom. And we are there to celebrate and to enjoy Jesus' presence as equals at the same table, all of us. Our diversity is not erased, but it's all sitting at the same table, celebrated together as one, as one family. As a follower of Jesus Christ, one of your callings in this world is to take the reconciliation you've received this way and to live it out this way. What that looks like is to join Jesus in the great work of breaking down walls and setting more tables. That's what it looks like. I know this is awkward and difficult and strange and tense. I, I get all of that, but but church, our church, us together, St. Mark, here, hear this. Here's my prayer for us, for me, for you. 
in the lives that we live, may we embody the unity that Jesus Christ has won for us. May we empathize with those who stay, who say it still hurts and it's still hard. And may we be willing to be the price of peace. And in doing so, may we give the world around us a glimpse of the divine and verse, the, 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 the divine and diverse table to come. Amen.